Good morning, One Church. Morning. morning. Hey, my name is Joshua, in case I haven't met you before. I am not Matt or Jamal. I'm not, not one of the pastors here, but they do occasionally let me preach. So this is my first time on the big stage. This is my first time to preach at One Church since we, uh, since we moved to 1212. So I'm pretty excited, uh, excited about that. So we've been in this series uh, about the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, the perfect ten, and we've been talking about uh, freedom, how this freedom uh, God offers to his people through these commands, not just a, a, a list of rules or a checklist to follow, but, but a pathway to freedom. So how many, how many of the commands have we covered so far? Four, right. So what was the first one? What? Commandment one? No other gods, right? Just, just that one. What was the second commandment? Don't make any idols, right, right. Don't make any idols. What about number three? Wait, wait, wait. Don't use God's name in vain, yep. And number four, last week, Sabbath, right? Keep the Sabbath holy. Okay, so what comes after four? What comes after four? Five. Wrong. Actually, it's ten. It's ten because we're in one church and we're not so great at math. Yeah, we're actually skipping today to the tenth commandment. So, yeah, actually, actually ten comes after four. Uh, uh, we're we're going to skip to the tenth commandment today and then we're going to work our way backwards, right, through the rest of the commandments. Why? Because that's how Matt and Jamel made the schedule, okay? <laughs> All right? Honestly, honestly, though, as I have been working, uh, have I, as I've been studying this, have I, as I have been kind of working with God uh, on this this past week uh, and before, I, I actually, I think that it, it should be this way or that, that uh, there's a reason for this. So... Uh, I've seen some wisdom in following last week's sermon that Matt gave us on Sabbath with this week's, on the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. I think it has some very direct and meaningful connection for us. So whether or not that was intended by our very wise and wonderful pastors, I think that's what God had in mind for us. So I hope that you're going to just stick with me. Uh, as, we, as we walk through this. So go ahead and bring up the slide uh, with the 10th commandment. And I'll read this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male, servant, uh, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, <clears throat> when we start talking about things like oxen and donkey, it might seem a little bit old-fashioned, right? It might seem a little bit out of touch. Actually, uh, this is kind of one of those rare instances. We're going back to the old King James where it says, do not covet your neighbor's ass might actually come across as a bit more relevant, but in a very, very wrong reason. So without, without getting too caught up in those specifics, we want to really stop and figure out, Hey, guys, my mom is here, and she's giving me, she's giving me the look now. She's giving me the look. Uh, she, to her credit, she raised me better than that, um, so don't, don't blame her for that one, all right? 
But I want to figure out what are we really talking about here when we talk about coveting, okay? What is it? What is God coveting? Is God suggesting to his people that they, that, that they should be totally without desire? I think that's sometimes how it's been taken. Uh, that when, uh, you know, say, for instance, your, your neighbor rolls up in a really nice new car, that it, would be, that it would be wrong, that it would be sinful to even let the thought cross your mind uh, that, oh, that's, that's a really nice car. I wish I had one of those. Or maybe that uh, somehow we need to starve ourselves of any, any and every want, that we need to live some sort of a, like a monk-like existence of self-neglect. And I, and I want to be sure that, yes, definitely the issue of wanting too much is, I mean, it's in focus here. It is in the crosshairs of this command. But if we were to only understand it just like that, I think we both over-exaggerate what this command is about and at the same time actually underestimate what God is really warning us against here. So I want to try to understand it a little bit more. First of all, coveting, when we look at it in Scripture, when we, when we consider that word in other places, it is understood as more than just a desire. It really is more of a, of a laying, laying claim on something. It has intent and action. So oftentimes when covet is used uh, elsewhere in Scripture, it's paired with an action word, with a verb like take. Uh, for instance, there's a story of a guy uh, named Achan, Joshua chapter 7. So God has delivered Jericho, the city Jericho, to his people, Israel. And he has forbidden them to take certain things from the fall of Jericho. But Achan takes some of those things that God has forbidden. And he's confronted about it. And he fesses up and he says, I coveted them and took them. I coveted them and took them. And this pairing you'll find throughout scripture multiple times, not as two separate things, but as the inevitable sequence to covet and to take or to seize. Uh, now, coveting is also usually in specific relation to something that is forbidden or that belongs to someone else. So we saw in the story of Achan that what he coveted was something that God had forbidden. It wasn't just some random thing. And then we look at our command, uh, the 10th commandment, and we see that it is uh, situated, it's framed specifically around those things belonging to your neighbor. Uh, I think the theologian Walter Brueggemann, uh, Matt gave me a book that really helped, helped me think about this. He, and I found some, some, some great uh, wisdom in there. He says it very clearly. So look at this uh, quote here. That the commandment concerns a posture and practice of acquisitiveness. The capacity and readiness to acquire what properly, be, properly belongs to another. And so to place the well-being of the other in jeopardy. So the Tenth Commandment has, has often been thought of as a departure from the other commandments, thinking that it just concerns an attitude or some sort of a, of a heart issue, that it's different from the, the action-oriented thou shalt nots of the other commands. But, but I think this misses out on the deeper community implications of this command. And if we miss what it's really talking about, then we, we can overlook the real dangers that result from this covetousness. We can, miss, we can miss what God's warning against, and therefore we can miss what it really means to be free from that. 
It's not just a personal issue of the heart. It's a disruptive and a destructive way of living for the individual and the community. So we've been exploring the Ten Commandments with that bigger perspective, right? Uh, Trying to understand them in their context of God's deliverance from slavery, of God setting out for his people a new way to live, a different way to live, a better way to live, a way to live free. And so in this context, do not covet is as tangible as any of the other ones. It's not just a fleeting moment of desire. It's God warning against a covetous way of life that would be a step back into that slavery. Uh, so uh, our, our teacher, Dr. James Bruckner, that, whose outline we've kind of been following along throughout this series, he says that the Tenth Command protects against bondage to a culture of coveting, materialism, and acquisition. And so what I want to do is I want to explore that in three ways. I want to see, I want to explore three ways that I see God warning us against coveting. Uh, And so we're going to spend, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at this warning, at this ways that coveting creates bondage, because I think we need to understand what's at risk so that we can understand what freedom really means. Okay? So I'm going to, so bear with me as we walk through the warning, because at the end, I've got a few verses for you that I think really show us what freedom looks like. Okay, so the first uh, area of bondage is personal bondage. And I know I just spent a lot of time explaining how coveting is not just a personal issue, but it does start there. It starts personally, and I believe God's command is addressing this at every level. So on a personal level, Coveting misplaces our identity and our faith. So instead of embracing our identity as children of a God who provides, our identity dwells in what we don't have. So we focus on how we are incomplete. That is not our identity in Christ. Instead of remembering God's faithfulness and promises, we fixate on how we can get what we think we need. I was so glad we sang that song earlier. I think God just sometimes, he puts those things in place. I will rest in your promises. We sang that. I will rest in your promises. Your faithfulness, your faithfulness, that's all I need. See, when we covet, it messes all that up. We don't believe that. Suddenly, God's faithfulness is not all we need. We don't trust in his promises. Look at Israel. God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, right? And he performed all kinds of amazing miracles. He brought them through the desert. And he had promised something even greater to come. It's this promised land flowing with milk and honey, all the good food that you could eat. And what are they doing? Matt talked about this last week. What do we find the Israelites doing? They're in the desert. They're complaining. They're complaining because they're hungry. And they think they know what they need. And they think they know how to get it. I think this is one of the clearest examples of how this kind of an attitude or this kind of a posture leads right back to slavery. Because what they actually suggest is that the way to fix the problem is to go back to Egypt, back into slavery, because at least there they had good food. God has promised a land with everything you need. And they say, let's go back to 
to slavery so we can get a good lunch. Like, to me, this is, this is Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. But that's what coveting does, right? It looks at, okay, here's what God did. Here's what he said. Here's what he's going to do, what he's promised. And here's what I want right now. And I'm going to trade that for this. I'm going to go with this. It really goes back to those first commands about idolatry. And it replaces God with something else that we crave. And when we talk about God's faithfulness, um, the specific part of this 10th commandment where it talks about coveting your neighbor's wife actually really stands out to me. And it's not because I'm thinking about something like some scandalous romance novel or something like that. I'm going to leave those things for whoever's talking about adultery here in a few weeks. Because honestly, I think what we're talking about here uh, is, is property. And that may sound kind of harsh, but right or wrong, that's kind of how things were. All right? So you'd covet your neighbor's farm and their livestock because those were the means of economic production. You covet your neighbor's wife because that was the means of baby production. And lineage was everything. Lineage was everything. Although it's not specifically spoken of in terms of coveting, I think this very misstep of faith is something we see embedded in the history of Israel. When Abraham got impatient for the fulfillment of God's promise, and he switches out Sarah for Hagar in order to have the child that he was waiting for. But that was not God's plan, and it did not leave Abraham fulfilled. And that is the story of coveting. We try to fill our wants or our needs or our expectations however we can, but we're always left wanting more. And the cycle just continues. We allow these things we crave to own us and carry us back into the very bondage that God has delivered us from. That's not freedom. So that's personal bondage. The second area where I see coveting bringing bondage is relationally. As we've mentioned, the sin of coveting is, is not isolated to the individual, but our command specifically situates itself in relation to your neighbor. Okay? And what we find is that coveting leaves us with relationships that are conflicted, that are competitive, and that are adversarial. Think about the saying, keeping up with the Joneses. You ever heard that one? I don't know, maybe, maybe other people use different names. Keeping up with the Joneses, it's about measuring ourselves against someone else. So we are competing at life. So imagine a competition. Imagine like a high-stakes basketball game. you got the competition going. So you've got heightened uh, emotions. You've got heightened tensions got that competition going on, maybe there's some trash talking, maybe there's some cheap shots being taken. These things come with competition. And, and you might even be able to say that to some extent, uh, it's all part of the game on the court. But imagine that that competition is just everyday life. What does that look like? What does it look like when all those same competitive traits are at play just in everyday life? That's, it's not pretty, right? And a lot of us probably don't even have to imagine 
right? We've experienced that firsthand. And God is warning us against this when he tells us not to covet that which belongs to our neighbor. Don't measure yourself according to what they have. Don't envy, don't lay claim to, don't conspire to get those things that belong to your neighbor. It is antithetical. It actively works against the kind of relationships that God desires his people to have. I think James, the author, uh, James in the New Testament, uh, love, love the book of James. He does a really good job at revealing this, and I'm going to, I want to let him speak, okay? So James chapter 4, verses are up here on the screen. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This right here is a clear description of a community wrecked by coveting. Selfish motives, fighting, even killing. Look, look at the contrast here. I want to look towards the end of there. The contrast you do not have because you do not ask. Now, I learned something new this week. For the first time, studying this passage, something that I, I hadn't realized before, because I've spent, uh, I've spent a lot of my life reading from the NIV. That's kind of the, the version of Scripture that I mostly grew up reading and have spent a lot of time in. And actually, in the NIV, this passage is translated, you do not have because you do not ask God. And I discovered that, that the word God is not actually in this sentence in the original Greek. And actually, a lot of other translations, this one included, and I specifically chose the ESV uh, for this purpose, uh, and a lot of other translations, maybe even most other translations, translate it just like this. Leave it at that. You do not have because you do not ask. But I think, at least for me and maybe for many of you, that we have often read that meaning into this text uh, even if it didn't explicitly say the word God. I know I have, even reading other translations. And, and possibly, maybe that's what was intended. Maybe the NIV got it right. That was what intended. But as I, as I revisited this passage, and when I learned that that wasn't actually in the original text, it kind of made me step back and think again and, and, and reevaluate this text and see what is James actually telling us here. And it blew it wide open for me. What if... What if the contrast here is not about coveting versus asking God, but what if it is about our relationships? What if the contrast here is between covetous and selfish relationships versus ones where we care for one another, where we ask each other for help, where we graciously meet one another's needs? Because one is bondage. The other is is freedom. Now the third area is that of societal bondage. And I wrestled with this one for a while. I was challenged last week when, uh, when Matt showed us what Sabbath had to say to situations like the bail system and what's happening at the border. I think 
if you're like me, Sabbath has long been something no more than like this distant theological idea, and Matt really took it into reality and into real situations. And what does Sabbath have to say to that? And I had to ask, what does God's commandment not to covet have to say to a system like ours or to a system like the culture we find ourselves in? And I kept returning to that phrase from Walter Brueggemann's quote that I, that I had earlier, the capacity and readiness to acquire and so to place the well-being of the other in jeopardy. And what we actually see as we look back into the context this command was delivered in, we see this repeated through the story of Israel. And we see how coveting on that level leads to a systemic imbalance of the powerful and the vulnerable. So we already mentioned how things like the house, the ox, even the wife were more than just uh, generic personal possessions, right? They represented means of production. So God gave these commands to a people. He was establishing, he was establishing a new nation. He was establishing a new system, a way of life, uh, a, a way of governing. And so when we raise the specific language of this command up to that level of understanding, God is giving us some economic policy in this command. So again, Walter Brueggemann, going back to, to this guy again, he says, and here's kind of a lot of words, but, but hang in there. The terms house, wife, means of production in the 10th commandment plunge us into socioeconomic concerns in which covenantal prohibition forbids the kind of economic free-for-all that might favor the rich and powerful against the poor and vulnerable. Now, like I said, that's a lot of words. <clears throat> but more simply put, do not covet means God says no to the rich getting richer while the poor get poorer. It explicitly warns against a system in which those with the power to take, take. And those who already have, take more. We can look at Israel and we can see what came before in their story, what became before this command being given, and even what came after in their story, the kinds of things that happened, to see why it would be that God would feel the need to command them on this specifically. So think about what happened. Think about what happened to Joseph during the time of the famine. So this is in Egypt, but before the time of slavery for the Israelites. If you remember that story, Joseph plays, uh, plays a pretty significant part in some sly economic maneuvering that ultimately resulted in the consolidation of power under Pharaoh. See, before the time of famine, if you, really, if you read the scripture, if you read the story, it would seem that, that the power was less centralized, that things like land ownership were more diversified throughout this area of Egypt. But during the famine, Pharaoh was ready because of Joseph's plan that he gave him with storehouses of food so that as people began starving and coming to Joseph, who was managing everything, he first took their money. They're starving. So he takes their livestock. They're starving. So finally he takes their land and their very own bodies 
as payment. So then after the famine, Pharaoh is seated, situated very nicely as a centralized mega power. And then many years later, now the, the title Pharaoh has shifted to another guy who looks at the Israelites and he sees them as a threat and he is perfectly situated to be able to easily enslave them. So God warns against this kind of culture, this kind of system. He warns against coveting, this posture of acquisition, because he knows that when the oppressed are finally freed, it's actually pretty tempting to take on the practices of the oppressor. And we see it happen. We see it happen exactly like that later on in stories like the one uh, uh, of Israel's wicked king Ahab. So King Ahab, uh, he wants this vineyard. There's a guy named Naboth. This is in 1 Kings chapter uh, 21. There's a guy named Naboth. He's a commoner. He's got a vineyard. It happens to be right next door to King Ahab's palace. Now King Ahab, he's king, right? He's got everything. He's got riches. He's got all the, you know, all the things he could want. But he wants that vineyard. He wants that vineyard specifically. And he even pouts when Naboth won't give up this vineyard. It says, it says he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Now, I've got a four-year-old. I recognize that behavior. That's pouting. But Ahab would not be stopped from getting what he wants. With the help of his wife Jezebel, Ahab leverages his power as king to get Naboth in trouble, to have him killed, and finally to claim that vineyard as his own. And you'll find that this, this practice becomes widespread, at least enough in Israel, that God feels the need to call it out through his prophets. Uh, particularly the prophet Micah. Uh, in Micah chapter 2, he says it quite specifically. So we've got this on the screen. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says to the people of Israel, to God's people, woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, morning's light, they carry it out, listen to this, because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them. There's that pairing again. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. And so we see it. We see it clearly. God has, this is after this is after God has commanded them not to covet, and yet we see why that warning was necessary. And I have to ask us, do I, do I need to connect the dots here? Do I need to connect the dots? I think this is really where uh, we see the commands about Sabbath, what, what Matt really brought to light for us last week, and coveting, this command not to covet, really see them overlapping. So Matt did a great job at drawing our attention uh, to the breakneck pace at which our culture operates, and it is in a covetous pursuit of more, more, more. And he called our attention to some of those who are victims of that system. And I think when it comes to systematic coveting, when we see this as a, as a system of our culture, 
or the world that we find ourselves in, a culture of grasping onto, a culture of acquiring more, a culture of clinging on to things, not letting go, that we don't have to look very far to see the damage. Now, we might not live in a time of that royal overreach like we saw with King Ahab, and we may not uh, exist in a system of like the farmer peasants against the Jerusalem elite like Micah was speaking into. But if we think about it, I think we've got some, some more modern methods or some more modern equivalents of this same thing. We've talked about here, uh, our community here has talked about things like redlining and gentrification. You want something. You have the power to get it. So, you get it. And someone else loses out. Man, I even think of things like, like health care and wages. When I look at the situation in our culture, you know, we've got CEOs and corporations padding their pockets while regular folks can't get, like, basic things that they need. And I'm not trying to make some sort of partisan statement. I mean, when money talks, everybody loses, okay? So that's not what this is about. I think in even smaller, uh, maybe, maybe they're not smaller ways, maybe they're bigger ways, but it seems more smaller, close to home, just in social ways, like how I, maybe I, I covet in society, I covet space for my voice to be heard. I covet the space for my preferences to come first. And if I've got the privilege to make it so, it is so, and others are sidelined. I go back to last week, to to Matt's sermon, and I think about those at the border that Matt spoke of. Denied the blessing of the Sabbath, something that God commanded for the community. And I see, I see coveting. I see coveting at work because I covet, I covet culture. I covet comfort. Maybe I covet my job or my neighborhood or the good old days. And then, out of that coveting comes a fear and a bias or even a law that puts some people in cages and some people in jail and some people in the ground. And that is societal bondage. Now, I don't want to get confused, okay? Are we talking about the church or are we talking about America? Because they're not one in the same. And I think there's a lot, sometimes there's some confusion and that, that, that gets us pretty messed up in a lot of different ways. And much of what I've described is pretty much the law of the land in the U.S. And as a worldly power, though I grieve it, <laughs> I don't necessarily expect any different. But these commands, these, are, these commands are for those of us who have accepted that invitation to freedom. And in that, I do believe that we have been called, we, the church, have been called to a better way. And here's what that means for our culture, our society. We're called to embody that better way within ourselves as the church and also to bring that better way into the world in which we live. There are real ways that we can orient our lives and the life of our church and our community in ways and take action to live that out. 
both the commands of Sabbath and to not covet are acts of resistance to a system of oppression. And to follow them are to step into God's path of freedom for ourselves and for those around us. And I'm still learning about this. Okay, so I've, like honestly, I I spent a lot of years kind of keeping myself in a bubble. So I spent a lot of time trying not to think about stuff like that, either intentionally or unintentionally. And I wouldn't have imagined that God's commands, the Ten Commandments, had anything to say about these secular issues. But I'm learning. Little by little, I'm learning. And I thank God for this church because y'all are teaching me. You're teaching me about this. So this week, I, I don't have a phone number for you to call like Matt did last week. And I don't have specific articles for you to read, but I do have a few verses that I want to leave you with. And I think, I think these are crucially important, and I think if we embrace these words, it would be transformative in our own lives. So in all of these areas, it would be transformative in our own lives, in our relationships, and it would be transformative for, for our community, our city, our world. So we're going to bring up a few verses here. Uh, the first one is Hebrews 13.5. And these, are the, these verses, I, this is what I really want you to take away this week and to meditate on. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. This, again, goes back to that song we sang. Your promises, your faithfulness. Pay attention to this because in this verse, because of who God is, because of what he does. So this keeps that identity and faith in the right place. This is why Sabbath is so necessary, right? The world's going to tell you something totally different, but Sabbath steps away from that, that culture of coveting long enough to take a breath and to refocus on what's true because God is faithful. He will never leave or forsake you. The next verse I want you to pay attention to is Mark 12, 31. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think this specifically speaks to that area of relational bondage. You've heard this one a lot, I think. We we use it all the time. Love your neighbor as yourself. Actually, in Romans, Paul repeats this. In Romans, Paul expounds on this, and he says that the the commandments, you shall not commit adultery... Uh, You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So there you have it. If you want to know what the do statement is compared to the do not covet or any of the other do nots, what's the positive spin? What's the opposite? It's love. That's, that's freedom. Love your neighbor as yourself. No need to measure up, to compete, to fight. Just love. And then finally, Matthew chapter 6, verses, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This is another verse you've heard a million times. But it, I think it applies specifically to this command against coveting. Because in chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, there's this long lead up to this phrase. 
where it goes on saying not to worry about things like what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat or drink, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all those other things, all those other things, they'll be taken care of. They'll be added on. See, this is the opposite of coveting. It's trusting God for those things. Your job is to seek his kingdom. And this is where it applies to our society, for, to, for our community. It says to seek his kingdom. And the, the great part is that this word righteousness can also be translated, and I might actually suggest it ought to be translated as justice. And if I had time to preach a whole nother sermon or tell you a whole bunch of books to read, it would be about this, but I don't have time. So to, like, trust me, look it up. This word means justice, okay? The passage is telling us, don't covet, don't worry about those things, don't destroy the world you live in, don't be complicit with the greed and acquiring and wanting more and tearing down others in the process. Don't do those things. Seek God's kingdom and seek God's justice and watch what happens. So we're going to pray now and I want to invite you to come and pray. So I'm going to have some some of our our leaders, our pastors, if you guys, Matt and Jamel, will come on up. Um, Cats in the back. And I want to invite you to pray with one with one of the folks in the room that are inviting you to come and pray. You may need freedom. This culture of coveting, maybe, maybe it has a hold on you, and you need prayer for freedom from that. And some of you have been hurt by this. You've been the victim of pain that this sin of coveting brings in relationships or in our society, and you need. You need the prayers for strength and for healing from that. On the flip side, some of us need to repent because we've brought that pain. We've been complicit in a covetous system that has done too much damage. I want you to come and pray because God has better things in store. Maybe you're hearing for the first time what a totally different way of life that Jesus has in mind for us. A totally different way to live that he has to offer and you want it. You want to know more about it. We want to tell you. We want to tell you what we've heard, what we've experienced, what he's given to us. So please come and pray. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And I want you to come. Join one of our pastors in the room and pray. Father, we thank you uh, for freedom. We thank you for your commandments that show us a different way to live. Not a way to push us down, but a way to lift us up to freedom. And Lord, we're challenged by by coveting and and, and how our, our hearts are so often drawn to that and how our culture and the world around us can so often push it. And yet you you offer a better way, a way we can live free in you with one another a way that we can be a light and a witness to the community around us. Father, I pray that you would show us that. Lord, lead us into that freedom. Lord, give us us a life that that lives as, as an example of trust in your faithfulness. You are so good. You are so faithful. Lord, let that be enough for us. 
Father, transform our hearts, transform our church, transform our neighborhoods and our city with love and trust in your faithfulness, Father. Lord, I pray that you would speak into the hearts of each person here right now and in whatever ways that that this maybe has, has been hurt in their life, Father, that you would bring healing and renewal. Lord, that we would taste that freedom. Father, we pray that you would accept our praises right now, Lord. Draw our hearts closer to you. Lord, help us to speak, speak that, that freedom and believe it as we sing. It's your name I pray. Amen.